Hey, thanks so much for listening to this message. My name is Jason, and I'm one of the ministers here at the Madison Church of Christ. It's our hope and prayer that the teaching you hear today will bless your life and draw you closer to God. If you're ever in the Madison area, we'd love for you to stop by and study the Bible with us on Sundays at 5 p.m. or Wednesdays at 7 p.m. If you have questions about the Bible or want to know more about the Madison Church, you can find us online at madisonchurch.org. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast as well as our sermons podcast, Madison Church of Christ Sermons. Thanks again for stopping by. I hope this study is a blessing to you. Tear my tricep tendon, uh, teaching a defensive tactics class at the police academy. Uh, They let me go to an instructor development class, and I goof around with Brazilian jiu-jitsu anyway, and they let me certify as a uh, Gracie Survival Tactics instructor. I think I actually heard it digging a a post hole with an auger when I built the kids a, a fort in Georgia. And I don't just build playhouses. I built a zombie apocalypse fort for the grandkids. And uh, that old and tough Georgia clay got, it twisted my arm. And I really didn't think it was that bad hurt. And I rocked along for a couple of months. And then last week, uh, I had a kid in a collar tie and something popped. And so they had it, uh, my tendon pulled off my bone and they reattached it to the bone. And I'll wear this little guy for about eight weeks. And then they'll let me uh, do some physical therapy, uh, which will be fun. Uh, I'm not weed eating, I'm not rock climbing, and I'm not shaving this summer. So if I look like a, a dude that crawled out from under a bridge, that's, that's where it is. Because of some of the things that I get to do, uh, both for uh, enjoyment and for uh, my job, I have been asked about this topic a lot in the last three or four years. Every time we go to a youth minister's conference, the youth ministers want me to talk to them about how to deal with kids and anxiety. Every time I sit at a youth rally and all the kids go to classes and I stay in a room with all the adults, they want to talk to me about kids with depression, uh, identity, and gender issues. And then I've been asked several times just to come and do a series on how does the church respond to mental illness or mental wellness. Uh, what I, one of the things that I do uh, with the police is we adopted this thing called the Memphis model. It's been around since the late 80s. And it's training law enforcement officers to respond to people who are having some kind of a mental health crisis. And what you'll hear from the extreme left is mental illness is not a crime. And I agree with that. So quit calling the police. (laughs) But, But what happens if you've got a family member who is truly mentally ill and it's 1.30 in the morning and they go into crisis, you're not going to call me. That's a very expensive phone call. <laughs> if you call me and I have to get out of bed from snuggling with Ms. Jones at 1.30 in the morning and drive across town, somebody's going to write me a check. You know what it costs to dial 911? So my family member's in a mental health crisis and I dial 911. They've got three options. They can send you a kid with a fire hose. They can send you a kid with a box of Band-Aids. Or they can send you a kid with a badge and a gun. Guess who they send? So the kid with the badge and the gun shows up, and they, they know three things, ask, tell, make. And a lot of times people who are in an altered mental state don't, can't comply with ask. They don't comprehend tell, and it turns out they have to be made. And so we're teaching some things to our officers about, well, you get dispatched as a law enforcement officer, and there's no law to enforce. There's just crisis, how to do a warm handoff how to get somebody else involved, 
Uh, we have co-responders now. We have a drop-off center, and we're training our officers in that. Well, I get asked about that with the police, and I get asked about that with churches. So I thought we would just talk a little bit about how the church responds or deals with mental wellness. And, and I'm an unsophisticated person, so I'm not going to try to overwhelm you with a lot of uh, diagnosis and, and things like that. I'll give you some broad strokes, okay? Uh, you have a couple of large categories for mental illness. Uh, and we'll define mental illness maybe a, a little better working terms. Uh, you have mood disorders. People with mood disorders have difficulty having relationships with their own emotions. They, they, they can't regulate happy and sad. They can't regulate motivated and unmotivated, or they go to extremes. So mood disorders are people who don't have good relationships with their own emotions. Personality disorders and there's several versions of personality disorders, but personality disorders are people who don't have good relationships with relationships. The word personality disorder, look at persons. They don't have good relationships with other people. If you could see their life from a view of 10,000 feet, it looked like an F5 tornado went through there. You run into somebody who's in crisis you know, at the, in the lobby of a building, and you go in and say, these people at this job, I hate them. How long have you been at this job? Three weeks. How long have you been at your other job? Four weeks. How many, how long were you at the job before that? Three months. How many jobs have you had this year? 17. Who's your best friend? Mary. How long has she been your best friend? Three weeks. How many best friends have you had? 37. So you, these people wreck every relationship that they're involved in because their difficulty is dealing with other people. And then you have uh, psychotic disorders. And psychotic disorders are people who have difficulty having relationships with reality. They don't perceive reality like you and I do. Uh, typically, they'll, they'll suffer from either hallucinations or delusions. Hallucinations are things that affect the five senses. They hear, see, taste, smell, and feel things that aren't there. Uh, it's different from an illusion. You know, I might walk in here and, and the room be really, really dimly lit... And, and I could see that light in the middle in the two screens. And Mike could conjure up in my imagination that there's a dragon standing there. I've taken something and I've misinterpreted That's an illusion. It's when I look up and say, hey, there's little cat people swinging from the rafters. That's a hallucination. I can see, hear, smell, or taste things that aren't there. Often the most prevalent hallucination are voices that talk to people. And those voices are never encouraging. Those voices never tell you, hey, you're a nice person and people like you. It's you're a loser and you're pathetic and you should kill yourself and bad things are going to happen. And then the fourth category in broad terms of, of mental distresses are what we would call neurocognitive disorders. And neurocognitive disorders basically means the brain did not develop. It's either too young, it didn't reach the milestones. We would call that maybe learning disabilities or, or disabilities of the brain. Uh, it'll be people with a 29-year-old body and an 8-year-old brain. Or you have people whose brains are so old, they're beginning to decline a little bit. And, and so they're losing function, and you might have some dementia, or you might have stuff like Alzheimer's disease. So four broad categories, mood disorders, personality disorders, psychotic disorders, and then uh, neuro cognitive disorders. Uh, we also run into to people who suffer from substance abuse disorders. Uh, I believe that all substance abuse or substance misuse is linked to trauma. And if we have time, we'll delve into that. So once you start talking about 
the manifestations of mental illness, I think it's, it's good to have a def- definition of what is mental illness. Now, when you talk about mental and you talk about illness, a true, and, and I mean a true mental illness, would be what we call an organic condition. Now, what's an organ in your body? Your heart, your lungs, your liver, your spleen, your pancreas, right? This is an organ too. And if something goes wrong with this organ, it creates a disease, just like my pancreas could not secrete enough insulin, or my liver have some kind of problem, or my heart have some kind of problem. If there is an organic condition, it is a true mental illness. It's it's no different than any other kind of illness. It just comes with a stigma. And that stigma is, oh, this person doesn't pray enough, this person's not faithful enough, this person must have had bad parents, that kind of stuff. No, no, if it's a true mental illness, it is, a, it is an illness just like cancer or just like lupus or just like Sjogren's syndrome or anything else like that. So how, do you, how can you tell the difference between a person who has this bad acting out behavior, a true mental illness, and maladaptive behavior? Now, what we mean by maladaptive behavior is I developed a way of coping with the world. I adapted, and all human behavior is adaptive. I do what I do because what I do works for me. But if this behavior worked in this context, and I'm no longer in this context, and I use this behavior in a different context, but it's inappropriate, we call that maladaptive behavior. Does that make sense with everybody? Okay, my wife has a set of skills. She was a middle school teacher and a volleyball coach. He had helped her survive for 25 years as an instructor. She can't use those skills at home. I don't run laps and I don't do well in timeout, okay? But, but, but it works in her school. It just doesn't work in, in our relationship, okay? And so when you think about, is your behavior adaptive? Yeah, does it work? Yeah, how do you know? Well, I'm still here. There's some proof of concept if you're still walking around the planet, your behavior works in some ways or you still wouldn't be here. Does that make sense? So how do I decide or how, what's my criteria? I basically use a super, super simple metric for trying to, to help people understand uh, maladaptive versus mental illness. And it's this thing that I call emotional intelligence. Lots of good stuff written on emotional intelligence. Mom and dad, the number one predictor for success of your children is not their SAT, not their ACT, and not their GPA. It's their emotional intelligence. Okay? Uh, People with 160 IQ regularly are employed by people who have 100 IQ because people who have insight into themselves and others uh, are the people who actually run the world. So here's the definition for emotional intelligence. Number one, do I have insight... How well do I understand my own emotions? Now, where do our emotions come from? Where do we get the ability to emote? My wife said, that's not a word. It's a word. Look it up. You get the ability to emote from the factory. The software package is installed at the factory. It's God-given. Every emotion that you can have is an emotion you can have. The problem that we have in in the church is we become emotion dismissing. Oh, you really don't feel that way. God had a purpose for that. Or we become emotion disapproving. You can't feel that way. You can't be mad at God. And when we tell people that their emotions are either disapproved or dismissed, then we don't process our emotions properly, and it leads to some kind of a disease. Be angry 
and do not sin, do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. Controlling your anger doesn't mean you never get angry. Controlling your anger means that when you are angry, it doesn't drive the bus you do. Godly sorrow works repentance that leads to salvation not to be regretted. When I feel bad about something and it generates a change in behavior, guilt is doing what it's supposed to do. But if guilt causes me to disengage, to isolate myself, or to become self-destructive, then guilt is not doing what it's supposed to do. So when you have a range of emotions, those emotions used properly will produce balance and harmony in your life. If they don't produce balance and harmony, then you're not using your emotions properly. The big thing about teaching children, especially teenagers, about emotions is, is the difference between information and instruction. And your emotions are information. They are rarely instruction. Okay? Um, if if I, I'm 59, I got to drive from here to Gurley, Alabama. The chances of me driving that way without stopping is slim because I'm going to talk for about 30 or 40 minutes and I'm going to drink water in the foyer. I'm going to get my little black Tacoma and as I start over, I'm going, you know what, I think I'll stop at the Texaco station. Well, because I'm connected to an electronic leash, I'll dial Miss Jones and say, hey, sweetie, I'm getting out of the car and I'm going to the men's room. 35 minutes later, I get back in the car. She'll say, what took you so long? I said, well, I walked in and they had this sign that said clean restrooms. So I had to get a mop and a bucket some rubber gloves. I couldn't. And she'll say, no, 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 you moron. They didn't tell you to clean the restrooms. They told you the restrooms were clean. That's the difference between information and instruction. So when I have a feeling, that doesn't tell me to act a certain way. That tells me something. And based on what it tells me can lead me to make choices about how I act. Now, if I understand my emotions and I have good insight into what these feelings are, if I can differentiate between frustrated and mad, your teenagers always act angry when they are scared. Grown men act aggressive when they are scared. You show me a guy who's bowled up and acting like he's a tough dude, he's just insecure. People who recognize their competencies walk around the world with a level of comfort and confidence that you can't mistake. But if I don't have good, if I do have good insight, I can label my emotions and understand my emotions, then I can respond to those emotions with self-regulation. Self-regulation has several layers. Layer number one is delayed gratification. Can I look at something that I, I want, but can I delay it because something else has more importance? It's the ability to choose between what I want now and what I want most. It's the, the oldest trick in the book. God gets Eve to look at what she doesn't have rather than what she can have. It's what Esau does when he picks a bowl of red soup over his father's inheritance. It's what Judas does when he chooses 30 pieces of silver over the, the faithfulness with the Messiah. And so if, if I can do delayed gratification or if I can do impulse control, just because it's hard doesn't mean I get to quit. Just because I'm frustrated with it doesn't mean I get to throw it. Just because it made me mad, I don't get to punch it. So if I can do delayed gratification, impulse control, and also motivation. And motivation is the ability to put in the hard work, the hard steps, delay gratification, delay my impulses so that I can get a long-term self-reward. 
or what we call deep satisfaction. It's, it's the difference in, let's take every Friday night this year and study two hours on our master's degree. Or let's take every Friday night this year and go see the movies. Okay, at the end of the year, you can have seen 52 movies or you can have a master's degree. Which one of those gives you deep satisfaction? You can have 52 first dates or kiss a lady goodnight that you've been married to for 52 years. Which one of those gives you deep satisfaction? I can stop at the store and buy a Snicker bar or I can go home and make a chocolate mousse and put it in the refrigerator, wait two hours and eat that. Which one of those has deep satisfaction? So when I understand my emotions and I can respond to my emotion with self-regulation, delayed gratification, impulse control, and motivation, then I'm a reasonably healthy person. Now the cool thing is that once I can do that with me, I can recognize that in you. Oh, she's tired, he's upset, she's happy, she's depressed, she's irritated. And if I can view your emotions and respond to them like I'd like to be treated, that's called empathy. And if I can do that, then I'm relatively a healthy person. Now, the, now when you talk about you know, emotional intelligence, understand my emotions, self-regulation, Delayed gratification, impulse control, motivation, and empathy. Jesus summed it up with this. Love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> That's emotional intelligence. I have a good relationship with me. And by the way, notice that I can't love you properly unless I get me in balance. Love your neighbor as yourself. If I think too highly of myself, I'm a narcissist. If I think too lowly of myself, I'm codependent. But if I have a proper understanding that I have inherent worth that I'm created in the image of God, and this is how I'd like to be treated. Until I know how to treat me, I don't know how to treat you. So if I'm healthy enough to have a good relationship with myself, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and control of the self, if I can do those things, I'm probably not mentally ill. Now, the difference is, do you have the capacity to do those things, or do you have a deficit in doing those things? A capacity means I can, but I don't, or, or I can, or I can't. And a deficit means I can, but I don't. For instance, let's, let's take an animal and let's teach it to climb a tree. Can a horse be taught to climb a tree? He does not have the capacity. He did not come from the factory with that ability. It's not going to happen. I can take a squirrel. Now, you may have a fat squirrel who decides, you know, I'm not going to climb trees anymore. I'm just going to walk around and become a ground squirrel. You can do that. But if he chose to, could a squirrel climb a tree? Yeah. Now, whatever reason the squirrel's not climbing trees, that's beyond the scope of our talk. A squirrel that can but doesn't is not mentally ill. He's maladaptive. A horse can't do it. That would be a mental illness if we're talking about tree climbing. That makes sense to everybody? So when you start talking about is this person mentally ill or is this person maladaptive, do they have the capacity for self-insight, self-regulation, delayed gratification, impulse control? And if they don't, if they can't do it, then that's a true illness. That's a mental illness. If they want to do it or choose not to do it, then we call that maladaptive behavior. Now, why do we do that? Well, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of a sound mind of love and self-control. Do you believe that we are people who possess free will? 
This means yes. This means no. This means you're not voting. All right? So, yeah, we have free will. Now, why is that important? Because anything that God says you should not do or you cannot do, and he calls that a sin, if you can't help doing it, then does it become a sin? See, God will not hold you accountable for what you're not responsible. You know, if I open my Bible and it says, Thou shalt not be short and bald. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. That doesn't seem really fair, does it to you? Okay? So... God's not going to hold me accountable for something I can't control. A truly mentally ill person, regardless of how that mental illness shows up, is an innocent. Now, he may be a 47-year-old sociopathic schizophrenic, but if he can't control his behavior because this is not working, God's not going to punish him. I call that an evil innocent. Versus somebody who can make a choice... And through some mechanism, they've corrupted their development, they've corrupted their adaptation, they've become addicted to pornography, or they've perverted their sexuality because of something. That's a different animal than this over here. So when you hear the argument that certain types of sexual manifestation, I was born that way. God's not going to call anything a sin that you can't control. Otherwise, it makes God an inconsistent ogre in the universe. So when God says, hey, this is a sin, now, I'll even grant that you might be born with a tendency to feel this way. My default setting is conflict. I I, I used to volunteer to the elders all the time at Memorial Parkway. I said, I want to be the deacon in charge of the Ehud ministry. You guys know who Ehud is, right? A judge in the Old Testament with a foot-long knife. (laughs) <laughs> that solved problems. I said, I'll be, I'll be the deacon in charge of the Ehud ministry. A good God-fearing man with a big knife could solve lots of church problems if you'll just turn me loose. <laughs> That's the way I'm born. I used to have a t-shirt that said, forget the force, just use force. I just, I just believe there's some things that you just solved right here, right now, like that. That's the way I was wired. Guess what I have to do with that wiring when I became a Christian? Even though I'm wired that way, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Turn the other cheek, go the second mile. Love your neighbors, yourself, love your enemies. My inherent wiring is counterintuitive to Christianity, and I've got the capacity to control that. Otherwise, God, God wouldn't hold me accountable for it. Now, does that make sense? All right, so what does the Bible say about how we get along? I think if you read the book of Romans, you get some real good insight into who Christians are, and how Christians are supposed to be. Paul confronts two people. He confronts a Jewish audience and a Gentile audience. The Jews were acting like they were better because they had the law and the Mosaical traditions and Levitical priesthood and all that stuff. And the Gentiles were acting like the Jews had blown it because they crucified the Messiah, and now they were in charge of the church. And so you had this bickering back and forth between the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul says, look, the problem with being a Jew and the problem with being a Gentile is you've got a sin problem. And the only way to deal with your sin problem is through God, through grace. It's not anything you can earn. It's not anything you can attain. It's something God gave you. And so he he walks through very gently how these people should deal with. It's not an advantage to be a Jew. It's not an advantage to be a Gentile. You've got a sin problem. Once he gets to solving the sin problem, he begins to talk to these people about how they interact and how they relate to each other. Eventually, you get to Romans 12, and it's how spiritually mature... 
and mentally healthy people behave. Romans 13, this is how spiritually mature people interact with civil government. Romans chapter 14, this is how spiritually mature people encounter other spiritual people who have different traditions or different beliefs. And so there's some real practical stuff. And if you look at Romans 12, there's some real good ideas about how we can measure based on Scripture whether or not we're a Christian who is mentally and spiritually healthy. Romans 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So the first thing Paul says is you have the ability to change your cognition. Transformation doesn't take place without mind renewal. Control the head, control the body. So when you think about how does a person get to transformation and renewal, Paul says this is how you do it. You don't conform to the world, but you transform by the renewing of your mind. The concept of renewing the mind is the closest you get to the Greek concept of repentance. We always teach repentance as a U-turn, either a Y-O-U turn or a U-turn. This is repentance. It's changing the way you think about something, and changing the way you think about something changes the way you interact with that thing. Okay, If you look at your favorite food that's causing you to be overweight, have high cholesterol, and give you diabetes, and you call it Krispy Kreme donuts, that just made me feel warm all over. <laughs> but if you look at that and you say, for my system, that's poison. When I redefine it, what happens to my relationship with it? Okay, people who can't do that are mentally ill. People who won't do that are not mature or they're maladaptive. So Paul says, I want you to think about God in a certain way. Not what can God do to you, but what God has done for you. Based on the mercies of God, offer yourself as a sacrifice. Now, how would you offer yourself as a sacrifice? By not obeying the world's rules, but by obeying His rules. How do you get there? You transform your thinking. That's the basis of cognitive behavioral therapy. So there's the baseline that Paul's talking about. Then keep going. Verse 3. For I say to you by the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, do not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think soberly. As God has dealt to each one of you a measure of faith, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members don't have the same function, so being many are one body in Christ and individually of one another, then having gifts differently according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. And then he'll differentiate between those gifts. But what he's saying is, is you've got to have a proper look at yourself. You can't think too highly of yourself. You, you can't get wrapped up in, in this uh, self-absorbed rather than being self-aware. And once I get a balance on who I am, an intrapersonal understanding, I then have an obligation to get along with a group, an interpersonal understanding. So Paul says, if you're going to be mentally healthy, you're going to be spiritually healthy, you change the way you think about you, you change the way you think about God, and then you change the way you think about you and other people. And people who are histrionic and people who are narcissistic, and people who are sociopathic don't get along and don't play well with others. And how many times have you seen churches torn up because people wouldn't stay in their own lane and they thought it was all about them? Surely you've not experienced that, right? 
And so Paul talks about systemic integration. He says if you're going to be a mentally healthy or a spiritually healthy person, you've got to have a balance on how you see yourself, and you've got to have a balance on how you see other people, and you've got to bring your skills and your talents and your cooperation. You've got to bring all that into the body and understanding that the body is not one but many members. And people who don't get along well in groups are typically not healthy people. Now, either they're immature spiritually or, or, or psychologically or emotionally, or they're somehow disabled through a, through a mental illness. Paul, keep going. Look at chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. People who can't have genuine emotions, people who use love or approval for manipulation and control are abusive people. I love you, period. Not I love you if, not I love you when, not I love you because, but just simply I love you. But if my gifts to you or my love to you are not sincere, if they're with hypocrisy, if I'm loving you to manipulate you, if, if I'm giving you my approval to control you, then that's not genuine love. And you'll find out that children raised in those kind of systems, specifically in our brotherhood, on the far right end of the bell curve where it's super what I call hyper-reactive conservatism, when you get there, those children grow up not believing they can't be good. They grow up believing they can't be good enough. And in 24 years as a private practice therapist, that group of children is 100% what represents sexual addiction and sexual perversion in my counseling practice. Because it makes it ripe for a person not to be able to be genuine and honest about how they feel truly it's better to look good than to be good so they learn to keep secrets well, what's the best secret you can keep a pornography addiction or a same-sex attraction or whatever and so Paul says you've got to learn how to balance this system and your love for other people can't be with hypocrisy and, and by the way taking a left turn just a little bit that's why tough love doesn't work because we really focus on the tough but we don't do very good with the love when we talk, talk about tough love, we tend to be punitive or we tend to be vindictive. Tough love can't be punitive and tough love can't be vindictive. If bad consequences solved addiction, nobody would be addicted because all addicts have bad consequences. But you can't put somebody in jail long enough, you can't beat him hard enough, you can't take enough stuff away from him, and he can't lose enough stuff to make him leave his addiction alone. Why? Because it's not about the substance, it's about a trauma that is linked to that substance. But when we start trying to use tough love, and, and, and if I respond to you with any kind of limit-setting behavior, and that limit-setting behavior is designed to control your behavior, then it's, it's disingenuous. I have the limits in my life because there are limits in my life. It's not designed to get a reaction out of you, this is just something we can't do. It's something I don't tolerate, it's something that can't be at my house. It can't be punitive, I'm going to punish you, and it can't be vindictive, I'll teach you a lesson. It has to be a, 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 a consequence based in a value. And then, I love you, but we just can't do this. I love you, and, and, I, and I want you to have a, a, an apartment, and I want you to live at college, but you can't live in that apartment with a boy. <laughs> I'm not trying to punish you. But that's, that's not what I'm going to do. That's tough love. But when we use love as a manipulation tool and it's punitive or vindictive, then it's, it's not genuine. And people who can't use their emotions sincerely and use those emotions genuinely, we're not healthy. 
we use our emotions or our sexuality or whatever as a way to control or manipulate other people. Keep going. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. People who can really tell the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, are mentally, spiritually healthy people. There are those folks on the planet who are amoral. They, they don't understand right and wrong like we do. Uh, I've dealt with some children who have attachment disorder. They weren't stimulated. They weren't nurtured. The corpus callosum, the thing in the middle of their brain that connects the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere didn't form, and they're amoral. They don't see people as people. They see people as objects. I could tell you two stories tonight, and you would not sleep. And they all come from children. But they don't have the ability to abhor evil or cling to what is good. Now, sometimes we romanticize evil. We look at things that are evil and, and, and we give it cute names. We call adultery an affair. We call sexual immorality making love. We, we give it all kind of glorious names. And Paul says mentally healthy and spiritually healthy people have the ability in their conscience to say this is good, this is evil. And my response to good is I cling to it. And my response to evil is I abhor it. People who are not mentally healthy can't make that distinction between their morals. Verse 10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. Again, it goes back to this idea, can I have empathy? Can I look at you and put myself in your shoes and by putting myself in your shoes make a decision about how to treat you? I'm going to try to do this with this arm. <laughs> Most of our conversations look like this with each other. When you run into somebody who's in crisis, that conversation needs to look like this. A real conversation between a husband and a wife is not understand me. No, 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 understand me. No, 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 understand me. Let me make sure I understand you. And if I saw this from your position, I would be mad, angry, sad, disappointed, or upset too. And once I can tell you that I get what you get, we've made a connection. Spiritually and mentally healthy people can empathize and connect with other people. Folks who are not spiritually, mentally healthy, or at least maladaptive can't see it from the other person's perspective. It's always about themselves. It's those folks who are narcissistic or histrionic who only have a themselves worldview. Okay? Keep going. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in the Spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Paul says mentally and spiritually healthy people don't let their circumstances control their attitudes or their emotions. Read the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 talks about people of faith. And in the first part of Hebrews 11, all these people of faith do these great things. They, they conquer kingdoms. They shut the mouths of lions. They escape the violence of the sword. They, they put to flight the armies of aliens. And then he'll stop and go, but others were killed, sawn, in, sawn asunder. They were tortured. They were kept in chains and in prisons and lived in caves and in holes in the ground. What are you saying? The Hebrew writer says, look, these people had this faith and they had these superhero Avenger movie endings. These people had the same faith and they died. Your faith does not control your circumstances. You can have all the faith in the world and still get diagnosed with cancer. You can have all the faith in the world and your house blown away in an F5 tornado. You can have all the faith in the world and, and, and your child get killed in a car wreck. Your faith doesn't control your circumstances, but spiritually healthy people does not let their circumstances affect their faith. 
And people who are narcissistic or or guilty of therapeutic, moralistic deism have this idea that if I'm a good enough person, God gives me these blessings. God's already blessed you. He sent you His Son. If that's not enough for God to prove He loves you, I don't know what else He can do. But when we start trying to evaluate life circumstances as how special we are or how righteous we are or how holy we are, then we become a victim to a narcissistic trap. Because righteousness doesn't come easy. And just because life is easy or rich doesn't make you righteous. And Paul says these mentally and spiritually healthy people understand that they are fervent in tribulation. They are steadfast. They don't give up easy. They don't lag in diligence. Then he talks about interpersonal relationships in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind one toward another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Don't be wise in your own opinion. Paul says, you know, if you're going to be a mentally and and spiritually healthy person, then, then you don't treat people based on the way they treat you. You treat people based on who you are. I treat you the way I treat you because who my father is. I treat you the way I treat you because of what my value system is. And your behavior of me doesn't allow me to do anything to you. Just because you lie doesn't mean I can be dishonest. Just because you cheat doesn't mean I can break my marriage vows. And so Paul says you've got, you, you don't treat people type and kind. And in fact, you're not, you're not so self-absorbed that when somebody else is having a celebration, you've got to one-up them. Or when somebody else has a tragedy, you've got to one-up them. That's the biggest mistake we make in the church when we go to people's funerals. And we go to somebody's funeral and their aunt died. What do we want to talk about when my aunt died? We're not talking about your aunt today. It's his aunt that's in the coffin. And we tend to make everything about us and our experience, and that's why we don't do very good in grief. Sometimes it's about your celebration, not about my celebration. And sometimes it's about your tragedy, not about my tragedy. And people who can set those boundaries and it not just be self-absorbed, but can be self-aware and other-aware are are mentally and physically and spiritually healthy. And then you have this one verse, and and, and I want to get to it before our, our time runs out. Verse 17, repay no man evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Now, when I used to read that verse, it used to scare me a little bit. I don't know if you're familiar with the the comedian Brian Regan. Brian Regan's kind of an odd dude. He says, you're eight years old. You're in the living room. You're playing with your Lego blocks. And Smokey Bear comes on TV. It's not Smokey the Bear, it's Smokey Bear, that's his name. And Smokey comes on and says, only you can prevent forest fires. And you're eight years old, you go, me? (laughs) I'm eight years old, that's a lot of pressure. (laughs) I used to read this verse and felt like Smokey the Bear was saying, only you. As much as possible, as much as it depends on you, you live at peace with all people. Wow, that's hard. But look at it carefully. As much as possible... That may mean it may not be possible. And as much as it depends on you, and in some cases it doesn't depend on me, people who are spiritually and mentally healthy recognize sometimes that there are toxic people they can't have anything to do with. And I can put proper boundaries in your life. Paul in the New Testament church says, you find those people in your fellowship who mark division, who make division, don't have anything to do with them. 
You take a guy who teaches anything other than what we taught and, and, and you don't have fellowship with them. Paul says if you get a guy who claims to be a member of the church, but he's an adulterer, an idolater, a swindler, a thief, or a drunkard, you don't even eat with a guy like that. Sometimes we've made the mistake that as accepting, loving, caring Christians, that we don't have the ability to set limits on toxic people. I believe everything in the New Testament written about relationships assumes the bell curve of normalcy. I don't believe when Paul and Peter writes about relationships with husbands and wives, he's talking about narcissists. I don't believe he's talking about people who are borderline personality disorders. I don't believe he's talking about people who are sociopaths. The New Testament was written on the assumption that I've got two healthy people dealing with each other. And even to the point that when he talks about loving your enemies, I think he's talking about people who are your rivals, people you're in competition with, not somebody who's willing to declare jihad on you and blow the buildings up. I don't believe that's included in this. You pray for those people, hope that they come to know the truth, but it's not a thing where you go, hey, you know what, it's my job to get along with this person and they're evil and they're toxic and they're damaging me and they're damaging my children. Paul says as much as possible, it may not be possible. And as much as it depends on you, it may not depend on you. And you can set some healthy boundaries. Three different times in the book of Acts, the apostle Paul says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen and you can't treat me this way. You have some rights as a member and a citizen of the kingdom of God to say, hey, there's some things I'm going to insulate my children from and there's some things I'm going to insulate myself from. And, and even Jesus himself says there's a circumstance where you can end a marriage and actually even remarry somebody else. So there are places in the New Testament that intimate that spiritually and mentally healthy people can also have healthy and strong boundaries and say this is something that we can't tolerate. And let's finish out this chapter. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. I just don't get to treat you the way you treat me. I have to treat you differently. I'm going to look for good things in the sight of all men as much as possible, as much as it depends on me. And it may not be possible, it may not depend on me, but when it does, I'm going to do that. I'm going to live peaceably with all men. I'm not going to get revenge. There's a debate in lots of circles that you don't have to forgive somebody unless they ask you. I, I, I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I believe the Bible teaches that we initiate repair attempts between other people. And my job here is not to avenge you. Owe no man anything but to love one another. Romans chapter 13 verse 8. And forgiveness is not about what you owe me. Forgiveness is what I owe you. And Jesus says the way you forgive other people is the way God will forgive you. Now I do believe you can forgive and not reconcile. Now every time God forgives, God reconciles. But I believe in some cases I can forgive you but us not be reconciled. Ma'am, what's your name? Sherry? Okay, Sherry barred my truck. Sherry wrapped my truck around a pole. I'm not going to sue her insurance company. My insurance company will pay for it. My truck is fixed. We're not hurt. We're friends again. Sherry says, hey, Lonnie, can I borrow your truck? I toss her the keys. That's forgiveness and reconciliation. Sherry bars my truck. Wraps around the pole. <laughs> I don't sue her insurance company. My insurance company pays for it. My truck is fixed. I'm a happy little camper. Sherry says, hey, Lonnie, can I borrow your truck? What are you moving? I'm moving a piano. What time? Four o'clock. Where? My house. I'll be there. I've forgiven her 
She still has access to my truck, but she's not driving it. <laughs> okay, that's forgiveness without reconciliation. No unfinished business, nothing evil going on, but you're just not going to have access to the, the gear shift of my truck anymore, okay? She got a hot foot. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, and so we're not going to do that. That's forgiveness without reconciliation, and sometimes you do forgiveness with reconciliation. So I'm not going to seek revenge. I'm not going to avenge myself. The way to balance my books is to write your debt off and my books are balanced. And that's the end of that. And so at the end of this, what does my enemy need? If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And doing this, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. You'll, you'll create a reaction in him that he views you as an enemy, but you're really not. And then the very last thing that spiritually and mentally healthy people do is, brethren, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As a, as a person who's spiritually and mentally healthy, I initiate the good things in life. I don't respond. I don't react. I initiate. And if I'm a person who initiates good, then it doesn't really matter what evil's doing. See, if we respond to evil, that's the only way evil can grow, by the way. I, I got to do a, a grappling with life seminar at Vestavia Hills uh, School and had 300 freshman boys and I wanted to teach them a lesson about evil. The, the book, Grappling with Life, Controlling Your Inside Space, is a book I wrote for cage fighters on how to have healthy, balanced lifestyles. It's on, it's on Amazon. But we did this thing. I said, okay, get 300 boys on a basketball court and say, we're going to play zombie tag. Now, the way you play zombie tag is the guy who's it, everybody he touches becomes an it. So you don't swap being it, you just grow the number of it's. And so when this guy tags him, he got two it's. When those two guys, you got four it's, and you got eight it's, and you got 16 it's, and you got 32 it's. In 37 seconds, 300 boys had been tagged in that room. I said, now let's play again. Start out with my same it. If you get tagged this time, do nothing. And in the same 37 seconds, 15 boys got tagged. And then I said, let's play one more time your it. And this time, if you get tagged, just simply stand between the it and everybody else in the room. And before the game even started, four teenage boys sacrificed themselves and made a circle around the it. And evil went nowhere. See, evil is not omniscient. Evil is not omnipresent. The devil can't do evil all over the planet. He's got to get us to help him. So if you tag me and I tag you and you tag somebody else, that's how evil spreads. And if you tag me and I'm not mentally or spiritually healthy and I'm a victim and I just sit down and cry, then evil's still out there running around. But if you do something to me and I can stand between other people and that evil, I can contain it. And if I can contain it, I won't be overcome by evil, but I'll simply overcome evil with good. That's how spiritually... And mentally healthy people respond to bad circumstances, bad people, how we get along with systems and how we understand each other and how we view ourselves in balance related to who God is and also who God wants us to be. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for today, for the wisdom that's in your word, for the inspired message from the apostle talking to these Christians at Rome about how they interact with each other. Father, help us to read these words carefully, to put them not just in our minds, but in our hearts. Bless us as we struggle to behave like mature spiritual people. 
Father, help us to deal with people who are inconvenient. Help us to have compassion and recognize that sometimes people can't control what they do and they just need our patience and our love. Father, help us not to repay evil for evil, but Father, help us to confront evil with good and be the initiators of the good things of this planet. Father, you initiated good with us. Help us to initiate good with others. Father, protect us from the evil one and help us not to view other people as evil, but as victims of evil. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this congregation and this fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.